Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Emancipation Day in Florida is May 20th, not June 19th. This is not a battle for reparation or anything other than let's keep history as it happened. We'll discuss how the automobile impacted early tourism in Florida. It complicated the hierarchical racial structure of Florida as blacks acquired automobiles and traveled around and outside the state. And we'll talk about the history of filmmaking in Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be When the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure, oh, glory, 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 oh, glory, glory. On January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing enslaved people in the southern states. The order would not go into effect until after the Civil War ended. On May 20, 1865, General McCook stood on the steps of what is now the Knott House Museum in Tallahassee and read the Emancipation Proclamation. A few blocks away at the Florida State Capitol, the Confederate flag was lowered and the Union flag was raised. A few weeks later, on June 19, 1865, enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, finally got the word that slaves in the former Confederate states were now free. In recent decades, there has been a national movement to have Juneteenth, or June 19th, recognized as a National Emancipation Day. Althamese Barnes is founder of the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network and remembers celebrating Florida's Emancipation Day as a child. That is correct. I grew up in the May 20th celebrations. In fact, from the day that I knew myself, we would go back into the country where my parents came from and attend these celebrations. To, to kind of go back a little bit, my great-grandparents were in slavery. And of course, they passed down the stories to their parents and then to my mother and father. My, my father, after slavery and everything, moved along, became a sharecropper. He was a member of a sharecropper family. And my mother on Wheelonie Plantation in Tallahassee. And then my mother's father was caretaker over on Waverly Plantation. So my parents believed a lot in educating and making sure we knew why things were happening as they were not in a bitter way, but just so we would be aware. And in fact, 
until fifth grade, I attended the uh, Griffin School that was founded by the Black Primitive Baptists. And we always were out on May 20th. People didn't come to work. My father didn't go to work. Other Blacks in the community, that was the day to take off, prepare, and go back into the country to celebrate. So it's always been a part of my life. I also knew that not only were we, that was that happening in Tallahassee, but because I came from such a large family, there were 12 on my mother's side as far as her siblings, seven on my father's side, they moved to other parts of the state and they too were involved in celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation. So to be honest, I didn't hear about June 19th to really internalize it or pay that much attention, probably until within the last three to four or five years at best. Through the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network, Althemese Barnes is leading an effort to have the date May 20th, 1865, officially recognized as Emancipation Day in Florida. Jarvis Rozier is Civil War Heritage Coordinator for the John G. Riley Center and Museum for African American History and Culture. He explains the complex process of ending slavery in the United States. The Emancipation Proclamation, um, a little history about that, when it came to Florida nearly two and a half years later, uh, May 20th, 1865, after it was um, signed by Abraham Lincoln in January 1 of 1863, um, like Ms. Bonds has said, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation has always been celebrated here in the state of Florida. Um, by the time it got here, I remember talking to my great-grandmother, and she used to tell me about her grandmother, which was a slave up in um, Hawkinsville, Georgia, near Macon. The first event that my organization did was a Juneteenth event in Macon, Georgia. Um, even though I wasn't aware of a whole lot of things, so I kind of tell people once I turn over a stone, I see 10 pebbles and it just keeps going and going and going. And I did several Juneteenth events, but I also, when I do an event in the state of Florida, I let them know that our actual history is May 20th. And that's what we're trying to make sure that it's done. I've always said, I know Texas is a big state, but it doesn't reach the Atlantic to the Pacific. so. Texas has its own right to celebrate Juneteenth, but that was when General Granger came into Texas and the guy was in Texas and they read the General Order Number Three. But that was the, the and, and it's, it's, it's wrong for it to be said and it's, it's inaccurate because one thing I always say, history is not objective, it's definitive. It's definitive history. Florida's history is definitive. May 20th, May 20th is our history. Um, Juneteenth was, and it's, it's been said that Juneteenth was when all the slaves were freed. That's another false. All the slaves were not freed until the 13th Amendment, December 6, 1865. Um, when Juneteenth came about, the falsehood that all slaves were free, that still Delaware and Kentucky still held their slaves until the Emancipation Proclamation, parts of uh, territories in Oklahoma as well. It was said that Texas was the last of the states, seven states in rebellion, which is true, but it's not the last state uh, that held their slave. But Florida has always been representing that in the Emancipation Proclamation. I remember planning the Maypole, we've always celebrated. I think it's been celebrated here in Tallahassee since 1867. I think it was Bonds, remember at Bull Palm, which is called Lake Ella here now. They celebrated that in 1867. They waited two, a year after just to make sure, but it's been celebrated every year. And each year we do the celebration with the commemoration at the cemetery that we mentioned where my unit does um, 21 gun salute and we play taps to commemorate those soldiers that gave so much. And also we do the reading of the reenactment at the Knot House where General Cook came down on um, May 10th and read the Emancipation on the 20th. 
So the history that we're talking about, it, it would be it would be sad to see our grandchildren look back at our history and say, why is there Juneteenth and we're setting celebrating May 20th? Juneteenth is a good catchphrase, and that's what it is. And it, it just started catching on throughout the country. That's no problem. Have a picnic, have a cookout, celebrate your history. But we in Florida should be celebrating May 20th, which is our actual holiday. And it, um, it would be kind of uh, sad if we move forward and celebrate another state's holiday and overlook our own. So it's important that we recognize Emancipation Day of May 20th in Florida. Bill Gary is president of the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex, a member of the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network. I think it's important that um, as we uh, have moved into this era of reconciliation and also recognizing the history of all people who have contributed uh, to this country, is that one of the things um, that we have to do is make sure, ensure that history is accurate. As uh, Mr. Rosia uh, mentioned earlier, we are teaching our young people, our students, and certainly we want to teach them the accurate history of our state there. Yes, Juneteenth has a history in the state of Texas, and it's recognized there, but we have a history also, and so students in the state of Florida and adults in the state of Florida need to know that May 20th is the emancipation date for those persons who were enslaved in the state of Florida there. It is very important, I believe, that history is portrayed accurately. We know now that so much of the history relating to African-Americans really have been left out of history books and have been distorted in some cases. So now this is an opportunity for those of us who uh, believe in uh, historical facts to fight to make sure that the history is portrayed accurately. Bob Holliday is president of the Tallahassee Historical Society. He advocates for education and history-related issues to the Florida State Legislature, including accurately recognizing Florida's Emancipation Day as May 20th. There are so few things in 2021 which unify, and I think getting history right is one of those. I mean, the the May 20th event in Tallahassee is a, is a unifying community event. I mean, there are black people there and white people there, and it's a unifying event. And as Althami said, yeah, you don't try to pretend the darker side of our history did not happen, but this helps us recognize that and move past it. I mean, it's all American history. I mean, it, it is all American history and, and it matters. Jarvis Rozier. The problem that we have with the um, Juneteenth, like I said, it's a catchphrase, but just to weigh in on that, December 6th, if we remember when the Emancipation was, uh, Proclamation was signed, there were four border states that did not include that, Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, and Maryland. Delaware and Kentucky were the last of the slave-holding states, we can work on a compromise, like Ms. Bonds was saying, they're talking about May 20th and Juneteenth, but we can't leave the wording in there to say, I guess I'm just stuck on history, um, being correct, that that was the, the year, and June 19th was when all slaves were freed. It's just not correct, and that would be a disservice to all those who gave it all. Like I said, 
Slavery didn't die by natural death. It died by over 622,000 lives that were lost during the Civil War. By the end of the Civil War, it did become about war, about slavery. So we cannot just, I'm, I guess I'm stuck on that part as well, that we can't leave that wording in there, that we can say something that Texas was the last of the slave holding states who are in rebellion, okay? Wording has to be correct when we document history and make it a law. Efforts to officially recognize both Juneteenth and Florida's Emancipation Day of May 20th are making their way through Florida's legislative process. Althamese Barnes is working toward historical accuracy in the pending legislation. There are efforts across the state right now, people organizing to do statewide presentations. We have network museums that are putting on special programs. Many have been celebrating all along, but they are putting in an extra, extra effort to get the promotion and the marketing piece out there. And um, I think we need more of that. We need all groups like the Florida Historical Society to help us reach our elected officials to help them understand this is not a battle for reparation or anything other than let's keep history as it happened. That is a critical tool to not only our school children, our young people, but my experience, and I say it with great passion, it helps us to get along better. For more discussion about Emancipation Day in Florida, watch the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum accessible online at myfloridahistory.org beginning May 20th through 22nd. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where we have a large amount of entertaining and engaging educational resources. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Take me riding in the car, car, take me riding in the car, car. Take you riding in the car, car, I'll take you riding in the car. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, as people are getting fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and summer is rapidly approaching, people are thinking about travel to Florida, as they have for centuries. Yes, Florida tourism in the 19th century largely reflected the options wealthy Americans had to engage in leisure pursuits and to escape cold winter weather and travel to warmer climates for health. The advent of rail transportation brought additional tourists, some of whom were middle class rather than the wealthiest members of society. Rail lines also permitted distant family visits even among the poor. But the advent of the automobile at the beginning of the century 
and the construction of the Lincoln and Dixie highways in the 1910s and 1920s opened new possibilities for almost everyone. In a 2017 article titled Early Motoring in Florida, Dr. Fawn Gordon explored three ways in which the addition of the automobile changed cultural perceptions. First, it complicated the hierarchical racial structure of Florida and the rest of the South as blacks acquired automobiles and traveled around and outside the state. Second, it challenged cultural perceptions of the South as slow with the advent of auto speed racing in Daytona. And finally, it confirmed white supremacy in the construction of highways using black convict labor and in publication of the magazine Florida Highways. In the segregated South, every facet of life was racialized, culture, public space, economic opportunity, and citizenship. The South, Gordon reminds us, was where citizenship, civility, and the franchise were based on race rather than birthright as defined by the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. As with other parts of daily life, technology and consumerism were the prerogatives of whites. That said, the development of a car culture in Florida, she says, took place within the context of segregation and tourism that depended on travelers from within and outside the South and opened opportunities for blacks to travel on their own. Black automobile ownership challenged notions of the car as an object and product of whites and allowed black mobility beyond the racially regulated rail lines. Motoring, Gordon explains, emerged as one of the few pleasures of American life that was available to African Americans. At the same time, blacks recognized that the perils of automobile ownership went beyond road safety. Robert H. Hall purchased his first car in 1929, a 1925 Rollin, which he bought from his employer. Nevertheless, he and his sons rode their bicycles for most daily tasks and used the car only on weekends. He avoided public transportation. Now, Connie, to help black travelers, a publication called The Green Book provided valuable information, right? It did. Traveling on the highways involved particular challenges, and blacks developed strategies to meet those challenges. Hotels, restaurants, and cafes, and service stations and garages were segregated. Beginning in 1936, black travelers could consult the Green Book for information about accommodations that welcomed them. In subsequent publications of the book, travelers offered comments and expanded the list to include entertainment and the addresses of homes that rented rooms to travelers. One of the hotels listed in the Green Book was the Wellsbilt Hotel in the Paramore neighborhood of Orlando. Its ledger reveals a long list of entertainment greats, as well as Thurgood Marshall, who stayed at the hotel during the trial of the Groveland Four in Lake County. Green Book warnings for the location of sundown towns helped travelers avoid potential problems with white citizens and law enforcement in communities that forbade the presence of blacks after dark. However, nothing could fully protect travelers against the dangers of being unknown and black. 
Connie, the Riches database has some personal information about African-American travel in Florida. We do. The Riches database contains a small collection donated by Patricia Black, who was born in Sanford. The collection contains images, business documents, and memories of travel between Sanford and Rochester, New York, in the early 1960s. Ms. Black's father worked in the salary fields as a crew chief for Chase and Company for most of the year, but organized a group of salary workers to travel to western New York every fall to pick apples. How much planning, organizing, and even prayer must have gone into each journey as the workers travel through the segregated South during a moment when race conflict was at its peak. As Gordon notes, the roads on which black and white travelers drove were built by prisoners from the state prison farm and state convict road force, the majority of whom were black. In 1923, in its inaugural edition, the magazine Florida Highways called convict labor a valuable asset that cut the cost of labor by more than half. Paradoxically, the use of convict labor in road construction was viewed as humanitarian and an example of rational modernity. The brutality of the chain gang provided cheap labor for road building that enabled automobile tourism. As Gordon concludes, early motoring and car culture in Florida locate car ownership and travel among the ongoing challenges of the long black freedom struggle. Interesting. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Take you riding in my car. I'm going to zoom you home again. I'm going to zoom you home again. Roll home, take you riding in my car. I'm going to let you blow the horn. I'm going to let you blow the horn. That's Woody Guthrie from a recording done in the mid-1940s. This is Florida Frontiers. A century ago, Jacksonville was a center for filmmaking. Holly Baker has more. During the silent film era, Florida became a center for film production because of the pleasant weather, beautiful scenery, inexpensive property prices, extravagant hotels, and low production costs. By 1920, there were dozens of film companies operating in Jacksonville alone. In the late 1920s, the transition from silent film to talking pictures caused another wave of filmmakers to flock to Florida. Dr. David Morton is an instructor of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. He wrote an article in the winter-spring 2020 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly Journal called A Year-Round Playground, 27 Hours from Broadway, Reassessing Jacksonville's Legacy as an Almost Hollywood. As Dr. Morton points out, there's a common narrative in Florida's film history that Florida was once destined to become America's center for film production. But did Florida, particularly Jacksonville, ever really have a shot at becoming almost Hollywood? What I was very curious about and wanted to dig deeper into, which I do uh, first in my PhD research and now um, in this article, was could there have been a particular moment where the American film industry could have gone in a different direction, could have Florida, for its own part, have been a major film production center in its own right. 
And there are a lot of assumptions that are often made about both Florida and the film industry, and in particular Jacksonville's role in Florida's early film industry. These assumptions are, are based fundamentally on this idea that had there been just a few different either political or economic choices made um, at the city and state level, Florida then would have become what California ultimately became um, in regards to becoming the center of culture and entertainment in the United States in the 20th century. In 1916, Mayor J.E.T. Bowden helped to turn Jacksonville into a film center by advocating for the emerging motion picture industry. Bowden even placed advertisements in magazines inviting movie producers to relocate to Florida. So he begins making increased overtures to um, some of the more major film industries and companies of the time, in particular, uh, the companies affiliated with Thomas Edison's Motion Picture Patents Company. And he gives incredible concessions for uh, land purchases and gives them basically the, the run of the gamut of the city to shoot whatever they wanted, wherever they wanted, and gave all kinds of additional public support to do so. Um, he also sparked a campaign um, called the 27 Hours from Broadway campaign. Well, the entire American film industry was still primarily focused around uh, Fort Lee in New Jersey and, and the greater New York City area. And it was far easier for filmmakers to get essentially the extended daylight hours and the temperate climate needed for winter weather shooting by going by train southward from New York to Jacksonville and going all the way across the country to California. And uh, the film people themselves became important contributors to his campaign and to the city government. J.E.T. Bowden, the movie-boosting mayor, lost the 1917 mayoral election to John Wellborn Martin. Martin's election as mayor of Jacksonville triggered the departure of film producers from Florida to California. Historians have claimed that Bowden's election loss is one of the main reasons why Jacksonville never became the film capital it was meant to be. As David Morton points out, there were other reasons for Jacksonville's decline as a major movie studio hub, including changes in the film industry itself, an influenza epidemic, a succession of freezes, and the U.S. entry into World War I. And that became sort of the established narrative about the history of the film industry in North Florida. Had it not been for J.T. Bowden being ousted from uh, the mayorship of the city, then Jacksonville would have become what Los Angeles became. Without, of course, then taking into account all the broader patterns and tensions that were at work within the American film industry at this very time, without taking into account all the different disruptions that are happening in Florida politically at this time. Because the easiest question then to ask is, why didn't they just go southward to St. Augustine? Uh, Thomas Graham has written a spectacular book outlining just how vibrant and active the film industry in St. Augustine had been. Tampa had its own emerging film colony at this time. Even Miami had begun to open up a handful of studios. So to, to oversimplify this down to just one singular event, uh, I just felt was bad history and needed to be cleared up uh, a little bit more extensively. That, that's really why I wanted to get that article out there. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
Visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.